I'm going to talk about the gospel. Some of you may remember Jay Carper. He and I correspond periodically, and he sent me a note. His question had to do with when is first fruits. And of course, you've all been here long enough that you recognize that there's a difference between the way we look at it and the way the Jews look at it, and quite frankly, the way most Christians look at it. So he's going through the scriptures, and he's trying to figure out what the answer is. And I told him, decide what you believe, back it up with scripture, and be open to the possibility that either superior scholarship or the God will change your mind. And he wrote back to me, and he says, I have real trouble dealing with ambiguity, but I'm getting there. One of the things about scripture is with regard to times and people, it's ambiguous. With regard to behavior, it's crystal clear. God says, don't murder people. That's very clear. No ambiguity there whatsoever. But then what you have is, gee, before the Messiah comes, I'll send you Elijah. And, of course, they asked John, are you Elijah? John said, no. And then later on, Yeshua says, well, he would be if you'd accept him. And so there's all this ambiguity with respect to prophecy. It's similar with respect to the gospel. When I came into belief, I was a a mature man. I was in my late 30s or 40s, somewhere in there. And I couldn't find anybody who could tell me what the gospel was. Of course, I was in the Episcopal Church, so got to give them some slack. But everybody just sort of assumed that you knew what the gospel was. And when you went to pin them down, well, what is it? Well, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, it turns out that there's some ambiguity about that in Scripture. Gospel, of course, everybody knows, just means good news, and it's used various ways. But one of the things that happens is Yeshua, early in his ministry, in fact, one of the first things he does is proclaims the gospel. So if you go to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Mark 1.14. Now after John was arrested, Yeshua came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Luke 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind. Yet to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord. I will gently suggest that he doesn't even start intimating to his disciples the fact that he is going to be crucified until some three and a half years later. In fact, as they're on the way to Jerusalem, and he is giving great big broad hints that this is going to be the final trip up there, and that he's going to be crucified, and he's going to raise on the third day, they don't know what he's talking about. And they have to keep at it. What are you talking about? Three and a half years earlier, he is preaching and teaching the gospel. So maybe at least in that incarnation, the gospel doesn't have anything to do with the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua. Well, if you go on, after his death, there's lots of these, okay, and I've just picked some representative ones. You can do this study yourself. It's, it, it's quite a good study. Let's go to Romans, chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? 
And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Messiah. Obeyed the gospel. How do you obey good news? Peter. 1 Peter 4. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So apparently there's something about this gospel that it's to be obeyed. There's something about this gospel that Yeshua is able to preach it years before he goes to the cross. So there's something about this gospel that I will gently suggest, and I have to say this carefully, doesn't have anything to do with the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua. Now it does, and we'll get there in a minute, but understand what I'm saying. As I'm reading scripture as a 40-some-odd-year-old man and asking these people what the gospel means, and I'm reading this stuff, and they're telling me one thing, and I'm reading another thing, and I'm saying, "Ah, how do I do this? I don't understand. And let's go to Hebrews, for those of you who are following along. Hebrews 3.16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Good news again, gospel. And what the writer of Hebrews, who I think is Paul, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is the gospel they received is the same as the gospel we received. But it didn't do them any good because they didn't receive it with faith. So it would seem to me maybe the gospel is far older than 2,000 years ago. It would seem to me it goes clear back to the Torah. And of course, if it does go back to the Torah, then obeying the gospel starts to make some sense. So maybe the Torah is the gospel, the good news. Let me ask what gospel the people in the wilderness received. Gospel of the kingdom, okay. Well, is there a difference between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of God and the gospel of... No, I don't think so. Let's look at the situation that the people in the wilderness were in. And let's compare it to the situation that the nation Israel was in at the time of Yeshua. Maybe that'll help. What situation were the people in the wilderness in that caused them to go into the wilderness? They were in bondage, weren't they? They were enslaved to an empire. What situation was the nation Israel in when Yeshua came preaching the gospel? They were in bondage too, weren't they? So maybe there's some similarities there. So if Yeshua is preaching the gospel three years before he starts on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified, and he's speaking to people who are in the same situation as the people to whom Moses came 
Might there be some similarity there? Let's look at what we got. And let's go back to the generation in the wilderness. What happens is sin causes people to give up their freedom. They may sell their freedom for grain, as did the Israelites when they went down to Egypt. Remember, there was a famine. So they sold their freedom for grain. We're selling our freedom for universal health care. But the point is, you give up your freedom when you need something that you don't think you can provide for yourself. Often they believe a demagogue. In other words, they get some slick-talking guy that will come along and will tell them all the things they want to hear, and they will trade their freedom in for words. And empire starts off as benign. Remember when Israel went down to Egypt, Joseph was the viceroy. Joseph parked them up in Goshen, which is the best land in Egypt for sheep, and everything was really, really fine until after the death of Joseph when we get a new pharaoh, and all of a sudden things aren't so fine anymore. So what happens then is you descend into slavery. So the next thing that happens is those who believe in God cry out to him, and God sends a redeemer. And what happens is the Redeemer separates the people of God from the people of the empire, the earth dwellers, to borrow a phrase from Revelation. Then God takes vengeance on the empire that has enslaved his people. Then we have the death of the firstborn. And it's the death of the firstborn that affects the release of God's people from the empire. Then the people leave with great wealth. They go out of there, having plundered the empire. Then they take a mikvah. They go down through the water and come up on the other side. Then he heals them. Because what's the first thing that happens when they come up on the other side? They're healed. Then he gives them the Torah, which is the rules. And then they go forth to conquer. Isn't that the sequence? So I will suggest that that's the good news. And that's the good news Yeshua was preaching early on in his ministry. That I am the equivalent of Moses here. I am the one who is going to lead you out of this Roman bondage. What does God promise before the next Messiah comes? That Who will come? Elijah, right? And everybody's asking John, hey, are you Elijah? And John says, no, not me. Not me. I ain't. I'm not Elijah. And Yeshua says, if you had listened to me, you would have been Elijah. So this got interrupted. So the pattern got interrupted with Yeshua. And of course, it was interrupted by his crucifixion. So, why? Why was it interrupted? So the pattern gets interrupted in the case of Yeshua. He comes in, he's preaching the gospel. You've got some guy, John, who could be Elijah, depending. But the pattern gets interrupted with him. The reason that the pattern gets interrupted is because there's more going on than just the release of the physical nation Israel. Come back to the New Covenant. Deuteronomy 30, Ezekiel 10, Jeremiah 31, Isaiah. So the New Covenant is all over the Torah. It's all over the Tanakh. And what does a covenant require in order to be in force. Shedding of blood. There has to be the death of a covenant victim. So 
So when two people make a covenant and they've got this lamb standing there and they say, all right, what we'll do is we'll cut this lamb and that blood will seal our covenant. As long as the lamb is walking around and healthy, there is no covenant. It's only the death of the lamb that seals the covenant. Now, God has a covenant with Israel. And one could assume, if you read Brit Hadashah as renewed covenant, that it might not require a victim. In other words, we have a perfectly good covenant. We made it Sinai. It's still in force. That was sealed with blood. And so in order to deal with the nation Israel, one could make the argument that that blood that got shed back there at Sinai, that's it. We're, we're cool. And all we're doing is we're renewing this covenant. And there's lots of people who called it the renewed covenant. And I will gently suggest they call it the renewed covenant because that's what they want to have happen. The scriptures are ambiguous. The word can be new or it can be renewed. And depending on what you want to have happen, you look at it and say, well, this is the renewed covenant. And we have the blood shed back at Sinai, so cool. We don't need any more blood. Everything's all right. But if it's a new covenant, that doesn't apply. Because if it's a new covenant, what you need is you need, again, the shedding of blood. Don't you? There needs to be a sacrifice. Well, if we were to sacrifice a bull or a goat or a lamb or any of those kinds of things, would that serve to renew the covenant with Israel? Sure. Absolutely. No problem whatsoever. We could cut a new covenant with God. You could get Yeshua acting as Moses acted to sacrifice or the high priest to sacrifice and you get the covenant. That could work. That could certainly work. There's a problem with that, though. There are no covenants with Gentiles, are there? Go back and read the covenants. It doesn't exist. If God wants to bring everybody in, then something else has got to happen. So let's look. Let's look at Ephesians. And I'm in Ephesians 3, verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Messiah, which is not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Messiah Yeshua through the gospel. There's that word gospel again. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Messiah and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So there is a mystery that has been hidden according to Paul. There's a mystery that's now been revealed. So that through the church or the synagogue or the ecclesia, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Oh, here we've got this perfectly good covenant that God has made with Israel that could be made a new covenant by the shedding of the blood of a lamb, but there's been a mystery. And part of the problem is God is dealing with a rebellion, not just down here, but up there. There's a rebellion going on. So what God is doing is he is extending the covenant to Gentiles in order to make known the manifold wisdom of God, his wisdom, 
might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it's something about bringing the Gentiles in that has something to do with the battle that's going on in heaven. Paul is saying that the gospel was something that was not expected by the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That was something different. And in fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians 2, and I'm in verse 6, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Oh, wait a minute. Rulers and authorities? Not a wisdom of the rulers of this age? Might we be talking about the same thing? Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So what Paul is saying in two different places, Corinthians and Ephesians, is that there was a mystery. In other words, for those of you who have been in any kind of military endeavor, you recognize that one of the things that you don't do is you don't tell the enemy all your plans. You've got your cavalry coming to Vicksburg. You don't say to General Lee, hey, I'm going to send my cavalry to Vicksburg. That's what's happening next. You don't do that. Because if you do, General Lee will have a couple of divisions or a couple of corps waiting at Vicksburg, and you'll lose your cavalry. So the idea that there is a conflict going on in heaven and that there are things that are in the scripture that are ambiguous or hard to understand is by design. And what Paul is telling us is that the death of Yeshua, which allows the Gentiles to come in by the shedding of his blood, in fact, was part of a heavenly chess game that was going on between God and those who were rebelling against him. And if they had known that, they never would have let Yeshua be crucified. So the gospel is the freedom and liberty that God has purchased for us from the empires of this world and, oh, by the way, from the heavenly empires that are against him. Because the empires of this world, I believe, get their power and authority from the empire in rebellion in heaven. One of the things that's going on, you know, if it isn't in the Torah, it isn't valid. Or if it isn't in the Tanakh, it isn't valid. Or if you're depending on the New Testament, it's not valid. Or if you're depending on Paul, it's not valid. People are picking and choosing the parts of Scripture that they want to believe. Go back to my riff about the New Covenant. Is that the New Covenant or is it the Renewed Covenant? Hebrew word works both ways. Depends on what you want to believe. And so what you need to do is study the word, figure out as best you can what you think it means. Talk to other people. You've got lots of mature people in here who know a lot about scripture. The mature ones in here know why they believe what they believe. Remember the problem I started off with as a young Episcopalian at 40 some odd years old. I didn't know what I believed. And most of the people in that church couldn't tell me why they believed what they believed. They believed it because their father believed it, because their mother believed it, because their priest said it. Now, as a matter of fact, I think that the things that they believed were mostly right. So, I mean, they had been, they had been given good teaching. I'm, I'm not suggesting that they were off in the weeds somewhere. They weren't. 
but they couldn't explain it. They didn't understand it. So the thing that's important is, as best you can, try and understand what you believe, but understand that there is ambiguity in the scriptures, especially with respect to prophetic things. And don't worry about it. Study it. Talk among yourselves. Talk to mature people. Figure out what it is you believe, and then move on. In my conversation with Jay, he laid out three possibilities as to first fruits. And they're the same three possibilities everybody sees. Is it the 16th of Nisan, you know, the day after the feast? Or is it the day after the weekly feast? And his problem was it made perfect sense to him that it was the day after the weekly Sabbath, which means that it doesn't have to be on the 16th of Nisan. It can be any day of that week, depending on how the Sabbath falls. That's what makes sense to me. And he says, but I cannot find anybody except a few of you crazy messianics that think that way. Then I go back to the Catholic Church. The way they get around it is three days is a Hebrew idiom that means on the third day, which means a Friday crucifixion would be fine. But that really doesn't make sense to me. And and I'm just saying, it's ambiguous. Study it. Pray about it. Decide what you believe and quit worrying about it. Move on. Because ultimately, once you've made your decision... Which way you come down on that question is of no eternal significance. If it were of eternal significance, God would make it more clear. Trust me. He's very clear when he says don't murder. He's very clear when he says don't commit adultery. Those things are crisp. There's no room for wiggle when he wants you to actually do something. That's clear. All this other stuff is great indoor sport. No heavy lifting. But don't get wrapped around the axle about it. I hope now you can all explain to anybody who ever asks you what the gospel is. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.